This episode, Horomono Horo has recorded with artist Warren Warbrick of Rangitane and Te Arawa Descent about his start with Taonga Puro through working in museums and his progression through meeting at a New Melbourne. He shares his passions and gives advice on different kaupapa of Taonga Puro specific to iwi. Hakarongo pi karimai. Nau mai haere mai rā e te whānau. A tēnei anoa hau e karanga atu ki Taiwiwi e karanga atu ki Taiwawa. Tēnei te mihi ake ki te hunga nō ngā hauewha i roto i ēnei o ngā whitiwhiti kōrero o te whānau o haumanu. A tēnei e karanga atu, tēnei au e karanga atu, tēnei te mihi ake ki a tātou i tēnei wā. Uh, kia ora anō i te whānau. It's wonderful to be back here in some awesome kōrero, awesome discussions in our Haumanu Collective podcast series. And today we welcome a guest from Te Arawa, from Rangitāne, a practitioner of Taonga Pūro that really goes beyond what people would class as ordinary. To me, he's a bit of a tupua. He's one of those deities, that man of a few words when it comes to certain things, but uh, a man in depth of uh, mātauranga Māori. And I just really uh, love the way this tuakana of mine does the mahi that he does. And so just really want to introduce um, our manuhiri today. Tēnā koe e te tuakana, tēnā koe Mr Warren Warbrick. Kei te pēhau, bro. Ah, kia ora. It's a bit of a uh, full-on introduction there. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so just firstly, bro, um, just to give all of our listeners out there a bit of an intro to you from your own words. Uh, kua bro. So who are you and where are you from and what is it that uh, the mightiness of Warren Woolbrick, what do you do, brother? Well, I don't know where to start, really. Um, I have a number of interests and... Um, my strongest interest is in, in traditions and, and reviving traditions, mainly in the in the area of practicalities, I guess. So one of my strongest things that I have an interest in is carving, but I enjoy um, carving using uh, our old technique. And um, I've been doing that since I was rather young. And in later years, I got to meet a man by the name of John Bevan Ford who introduced me to steel. And uh, so I sort of journey in between both techniques, but but using stone tools is my main main interest, and uh, especially with pūoro. I should say too, pūoro isn't just the only thing that I have an interest in. I have an interest in all kinds of things from carving timber, stone, bone, to um, research into stone tool technologies, creation of kukawai, the use of it, um, right through to weaving techniques and 
um, I kind of have an interest in creating things that people have kind of forgotten about or not really having a strong interest in. Especially for our area here in, uh, in the land of Rangitane, we've um, been very few of us on the ground. It's been quite hard to kind of get these things moving. But, but at the moment, I'm looking at uh, the idea of core and um, making core and, and using core. I'm doing a lot of experiments in that area at the moment. But uh, also looking at embedding our, our histories of Rangitane into our whenua. So there's a number of projects that are going on at the moment in Pamutana, and we're looking at uh, working alongside city council and other organisations, if you like, in terms of Massey University and NZTA and all of them in terms of looking at our wahitapu and our, our pūrāko and looking at how we can embed it into our area. It's been quite a journey. Yeah, kia ora, brother. I suppose one of the great foundations of all the mahi that you've just alluded to, the whānau that you do, there's a strong sense of connecting the ancient world with our modern world. And one of those voices um, that you use, as you said, is the tool making and the tool creating that you've done in your wood carving, your bone carving, your, your mahi whakairo. And one of the aspects in terms of our kōrero is, was it that pao? Was it the creation of, with the ads hitting against the rako, hitting against the stone, hitting against the material that you used in your journey, in your carving journey, in your research journey as a practitioner? What was it that got you into the taonga puro aspect of all those knowledges that you hold and um, that you are a part of? That's a good one, actually. <laughs> We've got to go back quite a few years uh, to, um, I suppose, the mid-1980s. I started a new job back in 1985, which was, as a young fellow, I, um, I got the opportunity to work in the museum sector. And, um, and through that uh, role that I had in those early days, I had strong connections along with our Rangitani Māori Committee and our... Um, and all of our elders, and, and they imparted lots of information to me, and, I, and it led me on a whole journey of researching Whakapapa and and who I was and how I connected to our people. And along that journey, I came across some information about my my great uncle. His name was Woodman Kingi Tiawiawi, and um, he was an interesting chap. He, he died in, in 1971, but before he died, he did a, an article for the newspaper here, which I came across, and it was about his interest in music. And um, he was a rangatira here. He was our, our, he was our main man, if you like. But one of his strong interests was music. And he stated in his article that the introduction to music was through an instrument that was played to him by his grandparents that brought him up. And um, that was Hari Rakina Tiawiawi and um, Emehine Tarangi Otu Tiawiawi. And they used to play Kowao to him. And that was his first introduction to an instrument. And they played it to him when he was a boy. And um, and for me reading this, I thought, what the hell is a Kowao? <laughs> <laughs> so it led me on to another, 
a journey really to figure out what that was. So I started doing a whole heap of research into what one of these instruments were. And then through my job, I, I found that uh, in Whanganui, they have a whole collection of these. So I started looking at those as well. The, the interesting thing with his article is that he didn't actually learn to play a kawaoe from this experience. What, what he actually started learning was piano and he became a, a jazz pianist and he had a, um, a, a quartet called the Larkins Quartet and they used to travel all over the place um, performing and a lot of his uh, members that performed with him became um, very well known musicians and, and actually went to America and started doing a lot of uh, work over there. But the journey into Whanganui's collection was quite interesting. We had a social history curator at the museum by the name of Johnson Takarangi, and Johnson also got quite an interest in this. So we did an exhibition of work in relation to Puro. So we looked mainly at the um, collection at Whanganui Museum. And I learned a lot from that. I started making instruments. I started trying to teach myself to play them. And I suppose... The two instruments I mainly had a strong interest in was kawaoo and nuru because I knew that these two instruments were played within this area of Manawatu and also in Horuwhenua. So it got me interested in researching instruments that related directly to us only, really. And not knowing what these instruments sounded like, I experimented with trying to make sound from them. I managed to do that. And then at that time I'd never heard of Richard and Hirini at all. What I'm about to tell you was very annoying to me because um, Johnson, one weekend, or after one weekend, Monday morning, said to me, oh, I went to a concert. I went, oh, did you? He goes, yeah, it was this guy, Hirini and Richard. They they performed at the art gallery. I went, oh, yeah. yeah well, well, what did they do? And they said, oh, they played Tāngā and then and he started talking about this, and I thought, you bastard. You could have told me about it. <laughs> Um, I said to them, "Okay, so uh, what did that? What, what did the kawaoo sound like in the in the nuru?" And he goes, "Oh, to me, it sounded like it was um, like a violin. You know, it had that kind of soothing feel to it." And I went, "Oh, okay." So, um, believe it or not, I spent a lot of time trying to play the instrument as a uh, to sound like a violin, and it's just you can't do that. <laughs> it does not work, but. Uh, but one of the interesting things that I found from that was um, later on, uh, many years later, I made an instrument for a friend of mine, uh, Rob Thorne, who was a putorino, and he played this and recorded it in a tunnel and put it on YouTube. And a young lady by the name of Selena Fisher saw it and created a piece of work from that for the String Quartet, or New Zealand String Quartet. I went along to watch this because I thought this is kind of funny because I originally was trying to make it sound like this. <laughs> and um, it was kind of a weird full cycle. And it was quite interesting um, what they had come up with. But um, along this journey as well, when I was working in the museum profession, we um, at the time we were looking at moving into our new building, which um, is the building that we have now. So the old museum, or Manawatu Museum, was a very small brick building. We moved into a larger one, and I thought to myself, you know, we're, we're setting up the new Māori Gallery, and um, what we could do that is different would be to create a soundtrack for this gallery. And um, I thought more and more about this idea, and then I thought this would be a great way for me to get to meet this chap, Richard Nunn. So I um, 
I talked the curator into um, bringing Richard to uh, Pamutana to do a recording, and um, he turned up, got to meet him, and um, played a few instruments with him, and was present while he was doing his recording. And uh, he also did a, um, a presentation as well to uh, a number of people here in the gallery. And I spent quite a bit of time sort of picking his brain and he was kind of picking mine at the same time. And then when he realised how I was making these instruments, um, it really got his interest. <laughs> and um, and the reason why it got his interest is because I was using old techniques to do it. I wasn't using machines or anything like that. All of it was by hand. And what he was in the search of was what, they would have originally sounded like. And then after he'd done his recording, he went back to Nelson and um, he left me with an instrument, which is a uh, uh, pupu harakeke. It was the first thing he gave me. And he was a very generous man, old um, Richard. And he said, this wee pupu harakeke, you keep persevering with it. You just do 20 minutes a day. And I tell everyone 20 minutes a day, it's all you got to do. <laughs> and I did that. And it was a perfect training tool to start learning other instruments. But anyway, time went by and um, I got a letter from Hirini inviting me to a hui up in Auckland based on pukaya and um, never made a pukaya. Uh, actually only seen one in a book and I gave him a call and I said, what do I need to do for preparation for this? And he goes, well, do you have a pukaya? And I went, no. Have you played one? No. Yeah. Well, it's about time. <laughs> this is your journey into Pukaya. And I went, oh, okay. So I had about a week to make one. So I quickly made one, did a lot of research. It was about all I thought about until that hui. One of the things he didn't tell me is that you went to finish it. We were going to finish it at the Wananga. We were going to spend three days creating an instrument and binding it with... Um, uh, a traditional technique that the people up there were going to take us into the Waitakere's and, and teach us about harvesting um, vine and all that kind of thing. I'd, I'd already done it. <laughs> Turned up with a finished instrument. Got to remember that everyone there were all full-on carvers. My instrument I did was very traditional in look, so it wasn't highly carved at all. And everyone was pulling their instruments out and showing them off, and I went to pull mine out of my tube and they all looked at it and went, Boring, isn't it? <laughs> well, Hirini said, the thing is, it's not what it looks like, it's what it sounds like. It's the voice that is the most important thing. And that, and that stuck with me yeah. really hard, just those simple words. Now, Wananga really opened up a lot for me, and it was probably the strongest time that I spent with Hirini. And um, he uh, took me aside and took me into the whare and, and sat with me and he said to me, you can get a lot of sound out of these instruments. They're very versatile. And um, <laughs> I think he wanted the instrument, but I didn't do it to him. <laughs> but uh, he played it and he, he's really enjoyed the sound of it. And then he started telling me about traditional techniques of use rather than playing. And it's the only time I've heard 
this piece of kōrero, and that stuck with me as well. And he said to me, you know, and at, at the time of birthing, especially the birthing of a, a, a rangatira child, the instrument would be in pieces. And he goes, as you know, we had no glue, so they, they would store them in parts. And as the mother is going through labour, the instrument would be put together. And as it's been bound together, they would bind the kōrero into the instrument and it'll be all the history or the, or the whakapapa of the of that child and what the responsibilities are. And it would be symbolically bound into that instrument. And then when the child is born, it is then played. And the base of the... Or the the, um, the mangai, or the, the, the mouthpiece. Yeah, would sit on the ground and you'd play it. And it, you always had the end of your pukaya sitting on the ground so that when the sound... The sound of the first sound is heard by the whenua first. So that alerts all those who have gone before. And then the sound rebounds off the ground to those who are living. So it gives these two realms um, the responsibility of this child and its upbringing. And that has always stuck with me. So I always talk about that when, when we talk about pukaya. And... You know, one of the interesting things too that he said to me, which he actually said to Brian as well, and Brian keeps reminding me of this, is that <laughs> no matter what you do with an instrument, they're all different. They'll never be the same. And he says you've got to think about them as being human. No human is all the same. We all have different ways of speaking and sounding. We have different thoughts, and the instrument will do the same. Mm-hmm. Which brings me to... Um, as I said before, uh, otherwise I, I digress a lot. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of those things is um, I was talking to uh, Shane James and uh, just recently, and he was talking about a, a pukaya, and he w- he wanted a pukaya that could do what a trumpet could do, a military one, and um, so he could do the um, military sound. And I said to him, you know, I spent years making uh, certain instruments to match um, European sound so that when we perform with orchestra or with chamber music that we can kind of fit in. And I said to him, you know, Pūrō has been colonised to the point where it was at its extinction Mm. and we've just revived it. And I looked at what I was trying to do and I thought, here I am trying to recolonise the instrument Mm. to be something it's not. Yeah. So I stopped trying to do that. And it's not because you can't do it, because you can, mm, but mm. why? Why would you? Yeah. If you're going to have a sound, have a Māori sound. Exactly, because um, it's been, what, just over a, a hundred and something years since the First World War that our Māori pioneers uh, have been recognised and it's the 25th of April was recognised as the Anzacs for the Anzacs but mm. it's also the day that is given to I suppose all battles and from the First World War Second World War and every other battle that took place a day to remember the fallen soldiers and thus we have the last post we have Revelli those things that are famously played on the bugle or on the trumpet and mm. like what Shane James was talking about, you know, like I've been able to play one of my pukai, actually one that you've carved, uh, I've been able to make that sound to play the last post, you know, but when I've gone overseas and performed at 
dawn ceremonies for the Anzacs, dawn ceremonies for the fallen soldiers of either World War One or World War Two. When it comes time for those dawn ceremonies, I don't play it like the bugle because the same thing like you is he mana tote pukaya, you know, our instruments have their own mana, have their own prestige, have their own whakapapa, have their own connection to the fallen soldiers, to our ancestors, to our tupuna, and so we must acknowledge and recognise the taonga as being a living entity, just like what Hirani said to you, as well as, you know, that same kōrero has been reflected to, I've heard that kōrero so much through from Hirani and Matu O'Brien as well, and and so it's acknowledging the pūoro as being working alongside you, not working for you, you know, and so treating it uh, with acknowledgement with respect, giving it its own name and um, sharing the journey. And so, mm. oh, this is this is some beautiful, you're not digressing at all, brother. It's be- beautiful kōrero. In terms of, you've talked about, you know, the wonderful things of your journey with the kōwowo nguru, going delving into, um, delving into the pukaya and uh, when I first heard that corridor of the Pukaya from you, because it was from you, you were telling me and James Webster that corridor along the river oh, yeah. in Pamutana when we were doing a documentary that uh, a co-papa that James was doing at the time, and you shared that corridor about the Pukaya to us, and uh, what that done for me in the continuation of the journey that I'm on is that really showed the acknowledgement of the balance. You know, that each of our pūoro hold, you know, it has the balance of, you know, all of those. Yet the pūkaya was played during the time of tu matauinga, during the time of war. Mm. But when you shared that kōrero that day, uh, reflecting back to it, the balance of that was, you know, the acknowledgement of us coming into Te Marama into the world of the living. Mm. And so not only was it played to open up the realm of battle and the death of, of on the battlefield, but it was also acknowledged the beginning of life and uh, ko te ora, ko te mate, you know, for acknowledging the living as well as acknowledging uh, those who have departed. And so in your journey, you know, um, no doubt you would have come across in your research, in your collaborations in your working alongside really what inspired you I know you've said it all the way along but what were those key things that inspired you on your journey to continue because you know just just you sharing your story is a whole whakapapa kōrero is a whole connecting people to places and Mm. the wonderful thing is you're always going back to your Papakainga, you're always going back to your ukaipo, you're always going back to your iwi. And so what continues to inspire you in the mahi that you do with Taonga Pūoro? Um, like you said, most of it's to do with what's related to us as rangitāne and what we've lost and what we're trying to revive as people. One of the areas that um, I got an interest in was um, putorino. Now, putorino I found quite interesting because it's an insanely challenging instrument to make. And when you're on your journey to creating these instruments, they're insanely hard to play. And the reason why they're really hard to play when you're on your journey is because you're on your journey mm-hmm. and your your first instruments never do play that great. You've got to kind of 
make them over and over and over again before you actually realize that the interior of the instrument is insanely important. So the challenge of making the instrument and making it well was something that inspired me. But, you know, as uh, Richard is generous, he's also sneaky. (laughs) He wanted uh, me to have a stronger journey in the area of um, making putorino. So he told me that there's an old um, oriori that was written in relation to putorino being played on the Tararua range here. And that got me even more interested in making putorino because it's related to us as a people here. So um, I went really mad on them. Um, I still am. And I've done numerous research into putorino um, and experimented a lot. Many years ago in the, in the uh, 90s, I worked alongside a chap by the name of uh, Rob Thorne. He was doing his thesis at the time. And we did a lot of work in the area of creating particular instruments within the traditional manner. We actually put together an exhibition based on it as well, um, looking at also timbers that had been eaten by bugs to create the holes and how how people um, utilise this to create instruments. Mm-hmm. Now, we had a wānanga in Rotorua. It was uh, a 10-day wānanga there. We took this exhibition with us. Um, it was quite a journey to... Um, to do this because we didn't really have a lot of help to do it, but we, we managed to get this exhibition there. I think that also the exhibition went on show at uh, Rotorua Museum. But as part of this, we did a demonstration at this Wailanga of what our findings were. And I made a putorino using stone tools only in front of everyone. And I was just sat on the floor and uh, created this and then bound it together. Um, using no glues, no nothing. And then I handed that instrument to Richard and I said, oh, play it. And, you know, uh, I was sitting there going, bloody well, better work. (laughs) (laughs) Picked it up and he just played it and it did everything it should do. And I I was kind of a bit blown away by that. And I think Richard thought that I was going to give it to him, but I think I gave it to you, Horo. Have you got that instrument? Yes, I still have it. Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) I did this a few times at different wānanga. So, um, you know, I think you've got one, Horo, and um, Rob Thorne's got one, and Alistair Fraser's got one. Although um, Alistair did something a bit strange with his one. Um, he took it apart and, and remodified it, and I said to him, you shouldn't have done that because I bet it doesn't work now. And he thought, yeah, it doesn't work now. <laughs> I have a, a way of doing things like um, there's a lot of people that come and see me about wanting an instrument made and I, I like to hear about their journey first yeah. and if their journey is just the beginning I'll make them an instrument but it'll be a very simple, very, very simple instrument and if they continually play that and if they can make it work for them in an incredibly good way and they, and they persevere and they keep going and going and going I'll keep watching them and seeing what they're doing and then I might give them an instrument that's nicely carved to represent where they're at mm. in their journey to inspire them to go a bit further. In fact, uh, Rob Thorne probably won't work this out, but I gave him an instrument many years ago 
which I made by hand at a wānanga, which is a pūtōrino. He's done phenomenal work with that. I saw a, a YouTube clip of him playing it and it was it was awesome. Mm. He, he played it really, really well and it's kind of stuck with me for some time. And over the years I've been doing a lot of experiments with double pūtōrino. So um, I think it was the beginning of this year or might have been just as we went into lockdown, um, I sent him one and said to him, you know, have a tissue with this if you like it, you can have it. <laughs> as, as long as you let me know what it's, you know, what your findings are. For him, he was doing a, an experiment for me or completing an experiment, which he was doing. But for me, it's a way of showing him that his level of work is, in terms of playing is at a strong level and it's a recognition of that. Yep. So that's kind of how I like to do things. <laughs> well, one of the things you mentioned there, bro, is you've naturally come across different stages of the creation of the of the puro you make and uh, highlighting that, you know, the importance of not forgetting how our instruments were made traditionally and showing people that uh, whether you're making them with modern tools and technology, the music or the creation of our puro still holding and still being processed and created with our old traditional instruments, yet they may take a little bit longer, but they still hold the necessities and the importance of the capabilities of being able to play. And like you said, um, the acknowledgement of those that are starting their journey and persevering through their journey because that perseverance builds experience, that experience builds exploration, that exploration comes and you start attaining certain skill sets to get you to a point of understanding the nuances and the ways that each instrument is created. You know, we're in the year 2022 and more and more people are actually starting to find a love for Taonga Pūro. They're starting to find a love for Taonga Pūro and, and a few of the areas that people are really attaching themselves to is the area of the carving of Taonga Pūro. Whether it is with modern tools from a bandsaw through to a dremel or whether it is meeting and being inspired by people like yourself where they can see YouTube clips, they can see websites where they see carvers like yourself creating these instruments with traditional tools as well as there are a number of resources that I've seen you in and that we've worked together on um, for you know education resources for um, for people that are wanting and from schools all the way through to people that just love Taonga Pūro, there are a number of resources that you've created and been a part of to show people the different aspects of Taonga Pūro. And so for all the different people that, whether it is for the carving, whether it is for the storytelling, or whether it is for uplifting the knowledge or the, the research side of Taonga Pūro, what would your words of inspiration be for those people that are wanting to get into it? Best thing they could do is research their own whakapapa, find what their their own people were using. You know, there's many, many instruments, but it doesn't mean that iwi would use all of them. They would use certain ones that relate to who they are as a people. So look very closely at those. Do lots of research. Research, research, and research them more. (laughs) And even when you think you've done your research, go back and re-look at it. 
have a look at what's in museums as well. Museums are a great place of inspiration as well. But, you know, I've, I've made them with using steel tools, stone tools, um, with dremels. Uh, I've used every technique you can think of, but the sound is the same. Mm. It's the same as the old one. doesn't matter what you're using, it'll still create the sound. But the most important part of an instrument isn't the exterior. Don't even worry about hardcore carving the outside of it. You've got to get your whole mind clear of the exterior of the instrument, but think about that interior because that's where the magic happens, is the inside. The The outside is an extension of that. That is an expression of the stories that need to be told or or the level that you have come to in terms of your, your journey. But um, to persevere, don't just make one or two putorino, you know, if you want to be really good at making a putorino or a pukaya or any of those um, wind instruments that are blown with the mouth, you make hundreds of them over and over again. But each time you make one, document what you are doing so that you can always refer back to what you have done before. And each one you do, if you're doing something different to the last, document it. If it sounds better than the last one, even better document what you did so that you can repeat it or you can expand on it. But also, if you're doing, I know I'm going on about putorino, but if you're doing putorino, document the shape of the instrument, or draw it up, document the length of it, the width of the central point, how big your hole you did in the central point, how big that is in relation to your blowing end. All of that will give you very strong practical notions on how that instrument plays and plays well or not plays mm. and always keep your experiments and then make your next instrument be the final. Documentation of your work is really important. Mm. Don't rely on your memory but mm. but the main inspiration is one to get a, a really good strong sound. Pukorino seems to be the instrument that most people want to make and it excites people a lot. Primarily it's a trumpet. So it's your first thing you want to try and get is that nice, strong trumpeting sound. You've got to remember too that, you know, once upon a time we were seafaring people, you know, we were navigators. Once we come here, we became landbound. So a lot of that changed. The putatara is a really interesting instrument. Every man and dog has one now. But back in the day, before Europeans were here, only the rangatira had them. And it was a way of signifying their presence and the strength of their mama. Mm. And we got to remember this. Mm. Pukaya came along because we were now um, landbound. It's like taking the, the shell and extending it out in a straight line. Mm. But, um, you know, research, research, and research them more. One of the cool things is in the long journey of Homanu and from from when Homanu was conceived from those early practitioners in the 70s and 80s that formed and created a collective or a whanau of people. Some were carvers, some were musicians, and some were storytellers, others were kaumātua kuia that tautoko that supported the kaupapa and coming through to where we are today and all the kōrero that you've been saying in this kōrero is that 
you've been a part of Haumanu for a long time and you were a part of the creation of, I suppose, the officiation of Haumanu Collective. And, you know, part of that is we have a whakatauki that plays along with our vision and it's ko te piko o te mahuri, kuia te tipu o te rākau. And, you know, the kōrero that you've just said in terms of for those starting the journey, you know, it's really that perseverance, you know, your growth, keeping at it, keeping at it at the mahi and always exploring, navigating. We are seafaring people. We come from the ocean. The moana is us. We are the moana and we are the whenua. And so part of that is, uh, you know, herito tangata, you know, it is the gathering of our people, nurturing our people, the voice for that sound and, and for it being a living entity. And so in that, bro, I just really want to uh, thank you for, for for sharing your time and I know this is only a really tiny snippet of kōrero that, 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 that's come from you and no doubt every part of a, of a kōrero that you've shared with us you could uh, elaborate even more mm-hmm. and even longer and, and it would be just as rich as what all the whānau have heard in this kōrero and so you know, we've, we've, we've come to that time where kua uh, te wā but this is only the beginning because I know there's a number of kōrero that you can share in your journey about the pūtorino, uh, your journey about the, the double pūkaia and the rangahau, the research that you're doing at the moment with that. And of course, one thing that I really love about your kōrero is to let whānau out there know a key element is, is, is knowing your whakapapa, knowing where you're from and finding the relationships between who you are, where you are from and those stories because it's those stories that will bring back and that will share with you and enlighten you to know, ah, in that story, this was the instrument that was played. In that story, this was the material that was used for those puro to be created. And so the richness of all your kōrero tonight, bro. And so is there any closing words that you want to share with the whānau that are listening in and that are wanting to be a part of te whānau haumanu or, you know, people that want to share the love with Tāunga Pūro? Yeah, um, it's interesting because in my day, to find information, you had to really research hard to try and find it. You know, we had no internet and... (laughs) None of the things that we have today. And um, we had very few practitioners. There was only like 25 of us at the time um, when I came on board in 93. And there's a whole richness of people out there that can help people on their journey. But, um, yeah, research and research hard. But remembering that um, the the instrument is not an entertainment toy. It is an essence of an extension of yourself when you're playing. It is bringing what is inside you out in another way. So our atua can understand you in a whole different realm. We're going to bring that out of you yeah. through that instrument. Kia ora. Kia ora. And just to let the whānau out there know, you know, um, earlier in the conversation Warren spoke about, you know, a putorino that he had made for Rob Thorne and he went into the tunnels in Porirua there, uh, not far from the train station. He played them, recorded them, and 
it inspired Selena Fisher, one of New Zealand's wonderful composers, um, to create a piece of music, as Warren said, that he went along to the concert. And that particular composition ended up winning an APRA Contemporary Sounds Award. And so that's where the journey of, you know, perseverance in creating putorino after putorino and handing, um, seeing the work from another artist in the realm of Taungapuru, gifting it to that person and seeing where he could take it and where he took it was inspired by a composer that, that she used his composition or his creation of music in that tunnel and you know it went on and received accolades in the music world and so this is the connection, the interweave that Taungapuro can bring and some amazing stories so um, e hoa e te tuakana koutou ki a koe te uri o te whakarewa rewa tango te ope taua o wahiau a tai atu ki te uri O Rangitane. Teneau Kamihiake Kiaque etua Kanea Warren Warbrick, Tene Temehi Nui, Tene Temehi Aroha, and uh, we'll see you at the next one, Nanga Bro. Looking forward to Nga Mihi Nui Kiaque, Etefano Mauriora. Ta-da! Uh-huh.